guys uh, safe inside from the frightful weather? That's good. Glad you made it. It's snowing, right? I heard that. It's snowing. Okay, good. I uh, hope you're awake today. It's good to be with you. Glad, uh, glad to be here. Um, my name's Luke, one of our pastors. As most of you know, I used to spend my weekends over at the Bel Air campus. Now I uh, spend my weekends at the Edgewood campus near where I live uh, at the Epicenter. We've been meeting about two months. It's going great. So uh, stop in, see us sometime if you have an opportunity to do that. If you come, we won't say things to you like, what are you doing here? Which is what people say to me, like when I come back here. Um, <laughs> yeah, good to see you too. Hey, as we begin today, I want to talk about something that uh, really has uh, gripped our heart as a church over the years, the last several years, child sponsorship. We sponsor a number of kids uh, all over the world, particularly in uh, Ecuador and Kenya and in India. Uh, and those who sponsor kids, uh, we do that because, uh, number one, they're real kids. And a lot of them, you know, their pictures are on our refrigerators. Uh, some of them have been over there to see and meet these children. And uh, we do it because we've seen the impact that it makes Kids are growing up in environments where uh, there are challenges of all kinds. We're all challenged, but there is a particular set of challenges in, in the places where these kids live. A lot of them, uh, because of, excuse me, because of poverty and everything that that means, uh, lack of access to uh, nutrition and clean water and health care and education. So child sponsorship helps overcome those obstacles and provides those for kids and their families. It gives them an opportunity to grow up in a spiritual family, driven by the church. It's connected to the local church there. We've got partners on the ground in those places. And so that's why we sponsor kids. Uh, $30 a month in India, $38 a month in, in Ecuador and Kenya. And uh, we have been sponsoring more and more this year. In fact, just in this year alone, we sponsored 650 more kids. So we're celebrating that. And we, yeah, you can clap for that. And uh, we really want to continue to clap and celebrate when we hope we can get to 800. We've got this uh, slide you, you've seen. We've put some benchmarks along the way. Well, everybody on there has shaved their head because they care so much about child sponsorship. Uh, and Ben has not. He cares about child sponsorship and uh, to the point that he'll shave his head if we get to 800. So we're 150 shy. So today, right now, in fact, there's going to be people walking around. They're going to have cards in their hands that look like this. And they're all, they represent kids, real kids. And so you can bring the house lights up and if you guys want to make your way around. And if, you, if you're feeling like, yeah, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to sponsor a child. Just raise your hand real high, flag someone down, and uh, they'll, they'll put a card in your hands. And if you take a card, uh, be sure to stop by the child sponsorship table. It's over there. There's a lamp on right there. You can see it. Um, don't just walk out the door with a card. All right. It's important that if you take one, you stop by the table after the service and just uh, kind of finish that process there. Uh, again, very meaningful thing. That's why a lot of us um, are sponsoring kids. And if you want to be a part of that, grab a card today and, uh, and do that. We may get to our goal and we'll shave Ben's head and all that will be great. But mostly it will be great because um, 150 more kids will um, be given an opportunity to thrive and have their trajectory change. So that's child sponsorship. Um, take advantage of that today if you want to do that. Today we, uh, we pick up where we left off in the story. Right? We've been working through the story. It's a book help, designed to help us get through the whole Bible. 31 weeks. And this is week 11, so and just, just over a third of the way through. Um, if you're just, just joining us, great. Jump in, grab a book, find a way to, to get in a group, and uh, it's going to be a meaningful experience for you as you uh, journey through it with us, just like it's been for our whole church. Um, whether you've been around since the beginning, 
started and, and got to this point, or whether this is your first day, you're just opening up the story, uh, you're in the right place. Uh, you're, doing, you're doing the right thing. Uh, allowing yourself to not only, not only to learn and to know God's story, but also to, to be shaped by the story and to be uh, enriched as you find your place in the story. So I want to continue uh, in that today. And this is, this is one of the most important parts of the story. As we arrive at chapter 11, there's some, uh, some anticipation there. And it's just, it's, it's kind of like when, uh, when you meet someone new and you're really excited about them and you want to introduce them to everyone that you know. You got a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend and you, you want to take them around and, and have everyone else meet them. Or you know two people, but they don't know each other. But because of what you know about each of them, you, you just, oh, I got to introduce these folks. You, you just want to put them together because you know that, that they will fulfill something uh, in each other. Well, you ever had that feeling? That, that, hey, there's someone I want you to meet. Well, that's kind of where we arrive at in the story today. There's someone I want you to meet. So if you got a book, go ahead and get it out. Chapter 11, you can turn there. If you got a Bible, which is a great thing to bring with you when you come to things like this, 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16, about eight or nine books deep into the Old Testament. Or dial it up on your phone. Uh, get there. Turn your phone on silent probably to save yourself from embarrassment later. But uh, 1 Samuel 16 is where we begin today. This chapter begins with a form of uh, encouragement that I've been known to give from time to time when I'm at home with my kids or maybe out coaching on the field or on the court. And it's a word from God to his prophet Samuel, one of the leaders of Israel. And God basically says to him, as I've been known to say from time to time, quit pouting. Quit pouting, Samuel. Samuel was upset over how everything had gone down with Saul. Saul, you might remember, first king over Israel. We met him last week. You remember how this uh, loose collection of tribes that made up Israel, they had decided that they wanted to be just like every other nation and have a king. And God said, I'm your king. And they said, no, we want the kind of king like what everyone else has. And so just like what everyone else would do, they chose the biggest, tallest, strongest, best looking guy around and made him king. That's King Saul. Samuel anointed him himself. But it wasn't working out. Saul was in charge. He, he was the boss, but he wouldn't let God be the boss of him. And if you're going to lead God's people, then that just doesn't work. So God had to look for someone else. Quit pouting, Samuel, God said. It's clear that Saul cannot fulfill what I've asked him to do. So get up and go to Bethlehem. There's someone I want you to meet. And when you meet him, you're going to anoint him as the next king. So Samuel did. He went to Bethlehem where he met the leaders of that town and then together they all went to the house of a man named Jesse who had eight sons. Let's see if we can find a king here, Samuel said. Oh, in fact, I, I think I might see him right now. Chapter 16, 1 Samuel and verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, Jesse's oldest. And he thought, well, surely... Here he is, the anointed one, stands right here before the Lord. This is him. He's the one. Everybody would have had to have agreed. I mean, the oldest son, daddy's standing over there in the corner, proud look on his face, looking at his boy. Eliab doing his best to like look the part and kind of act surprised and honored that he would be chosen. Who, me? Aw, oh, shucks, right? Looks like we're ready to ink the deal. But 
Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance. Don't look at his height, for I've rejected him. For the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Convicting truth, isn't it? And an important one. People, we draw conclusions based on what we see. God draws conclusions based on what He sees. But we don't always see things the same way, do we? Let's see if we can find a king here, Samuel says. What about your next son, he asks Jesse. In verse 8, then Jesse called in Abinadab and he had him pass in front of Samuel. It's like a fashion show, right? But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, I mean, there's, there's the youngest, Jesse said, but he, he's out tending the sheep. <laughs> the, the invisible one, the overlooked kid, the one you forget on vacation, I guess, right? Yeah, there, there's another one, but he's out in the sheep pasture. Dad doesn't even think enough of him to, to enter him into the running. And, and that's actually probably more like it. It's not that Jesse forgot about him. It's just that he assumed that he was irrelevant to such an important matter. Too young for this. Not equipped for this. He can never do this. Anyone ever said that to you? Well, go get your other son. Bring him in here, Samuel says. So they go and they get the youngest of the bunch, a teenager, and they bring him before Samuel. Verse 12, Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. Don't let anyone ever tell you you're too young to be called by God. People see things one way. But the Lord sees things another way. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, which I'm sure was just a real special thing for his brothers to watch their little runt brother be anointed the next king over the land. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. There's someone I want you to meet. His name is David. This is how we're introduced to him in the Bible. Teenager, probably. Seven older, bigger brothers. Shepherd, not a very glamorous lot in life. Anyone can see that. But the Lord doesn't see as people see. And when he needed someone to shepherd his people, he looked past all the bigger, taller, more qualified, more experienced candidates, and he grabbed a boy from the sheep pen. Which, to be honest, I mean, shouldn't really surprise you at this point. Should it? If you've been following along in the story, every week it seems like we're saying God can use anybody because he just keeps doing it. He chose an idol-worshiping Abraham to build a nation devoted to God. He uses infertile women to give birth to future leaders. A prostitute seemed like the perfect candidate to aid God's people in battle. He chooses the frightened Gideon from the weakest family to become his mighty warrior and leader of his people. I mean, it just keeps going. Whatever your excuse is. I mean, it's like, if you think you're disqualified, then you are most perfectly qualified to be used by God. People see things one way. 
God sees things another. And he saw something in David. It's interesting, this, uh, this anointing is kind of done on the down low, right? Kind of kept quiet. Remember, of course, there's a king on the throne, Saul. And you don't just one day uh, replace a king with a teenage shepherd, right? So it's not the case that, you know, the next day David's the king. But it is the case that even at that young age, David's heart, his integrity, his character, his faithfulness to God is real. David had a heart like God's even before he was old enough to know what God wanted him to do with it. Every day as a teenager, he's out in the pasture, let the sheep out, bring the sheep back in. David was faithful in that. Right there, that counted. He didn't assume that his job as a shepherd was insignificant in God's eyes. He wasn't waiting until he got older to really follow God. He wasn't delaying his commitment to do what is right. No, he he set his heart on pursuing God right where he was right now, even though his royal appointment was on hold. And he didn't even know that that was in his future when he made a decision about the kind of person that he wanted to be. That's a lesson for me. Too often I've thought, oh, I'll be better at that when I grow up. I'll give those character flaws attention when, when I'm older and it matters. I'll take that sin seriously later. Someday I'll get my temper under control. Someday when I, when I gain more responsibility, then I'll, I'll deepen my prayer life. When all eyes are, are, are watching me, then I'll really follow Jesus the way that He calls me to. But the only eyes that matter are already watching. God already sees. No matter what anybody else sees, God sees the heart. Even if you're young or you feel invisible or you feel like nobody's looking or nobody cares, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters to God. It mattered to God when He needed someone who He could trust to wear the crown of gold. He chose someone with a heart of gold. God sees the heart. What's your heart look like? Are you allowing your heart to be shaped by God? Or are you more concerned with shaping a facade that looks good to others on the outside? The young shepherd boy didn't get the crown yet. But the Bible says that upon Samuel's anointing, God gave his spirit to David which is good, because he's going to need it. I know that um, there are a variety of different resources for the story. Some of you have them. There's audio versions and Spanish translations and kids' books and teens and picture Bibles and and all of that. Uh, Well, long before all of that, I had a a picture Bible that that I had. It's right here. Uh, Now you can read stories from the Bible. It's got some miles on it, a little worn and taped together. Christmas. 1984, 29 years old, to Luke. May you always enjoy these Bible stories and how God led his people and taught them to do good. May you learn from Jesus' stories that you'll love him and live for him every day. I love you, Auntie Patrice. So uh, I loved this book growing up and read it a lot. I still read it to my kids. There's 10 stories in here. But easily my favorite one growing up was uh, this one right here. Right, you see that? Hello? You see that? Okay, good. You awake? <laughs> okay. David and Goliath. 
which I'm guessing you've heard of this before, right? You, you've seen it. I, I don't know what image you have in your mind, but it's, I don't know, something like this. It's a mismatch, right? Young boy squares off against a giant. And you don't even have to be the kind of family that like gives picture Bibles to each other for Christmas to, to know this story, right? It's pretty common, even in, in our broader culture. Sportscasters use it all the time. Whenever the underdog is facing the favorite, they, they use this David and Goliath language. The big schools play in the little school. Defending Super Bowl champs against the lowly Vikings, right? Which <laughs> could make anyone look like Goliath. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Vikings fan, too. Auntie Patrice lives in Minnesota, which is where I'm from. So now you know how I got hired here. Uh, <laughs> even though, I mean, I'm, I'm not as obnoxious about it as Ben. But that's just his way. That's just what he does. Uh, but it, anyway, you've seen it. You've seen the David and Goliath image. It's used in the sports world. You, you've probably referenced it yourself. Or you, you've heard a news story, and it was about someone, maybe particularly a young person, taking on insurmountable odds, and, and they told it it was a David and Goliath story. Right? Well, all of those references trace themselves back to one place, in the Valley of Elah, 1 Samuel 17. Are you ready for a real David and Goliath story? Are you ready for a real David and Goliath story? Well, it begins with two armies assembled on opposing hills, the Valley of Elah down in between them. On the one side, God's people, Israel, led by King Saul. On the other side, the hated Philistines, their rivals to the south, which at this time were a very real and constant threat to the Israelites. Thousands of men flanked the valley, but only one voice is heard among them. It's Goliath, the Philistine champion. All nine feet of them. The Bible is careful to document the 125 pounds of armor clinging to his chiseled body. They probably ripped the hood off an old F-150 and used it for his breastplate, right? He's been bred to kill. Fought his first duel like before he was weaned. Woke up that morning and poured motor oil on his Wheaties. Then walked down into the valley to taunt the opponents on the other side. Send me a man! He shouts across the valley. Voice reverberating among the Israelite battalions, nodding up their stomach and sending chills down their spine. Those are his terms. Man versus man. You pick a man from your side, anyone you want, and they'll fight me. If he wins, we'll become your slaves. But if I win, you'll be our slaves. Send me a man, if you have any over there. And on the hill where the Israelite army was gathered, nobody moved. For 40 days, Goliath cursed the Israelite army, defied their God and their king. And for 40 days, nobody moved. Among the army were David's three oldest brothers. David was still back home tending his father's sheep. But Jesse had sent David to the front lines to check on his brothers and bring them some food and just see how they were doing so he could bring back a report about them. So David uh, did as he was told. But then while he was there talking with his brothers, he heard the mocking voice booming from the valley. Fresh on the scene, David had asked, who's this guy? I mean, who, who is this, this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He says he wants a man. What's going to be done for the man who goes out there and removes this disgrace from God's people? You sense David's disbelief when he discovers that nobody's done anything for 40 days. 
David's curiosity isn't welcomed by his oldest brother. Go back home, shepherd boy. Your work here is done. How arrogant are you to think that you could possibly, possibly be of help here? Speaking as an oldest brother myself, if I saw courage in my younger brother that I lacked myself, I'd be threatened too. David couldn't let it go. Something had stirred in him. This was his family. These were his people. This was his God. And this behemoth out in the valley had no regard for any of them. Isn't anyone going to take a stand for God? Do you hear what this Philistine is saying about our God? Is not our God the one who has delivered us time and time again? Is he not the one who has fought for us? Is he not the one who has gone ahead of us and never forsaken us? Will he not again go with a man down into this valley and prove himself one more time? While the rest of the army remains unconvinced, including the king, David, the young shepherd boy, prepares for battle. He doesn't look like a warrior. King Saul tries to fix that. He takes his armor and puts it on David. But it was clear that it was only going to weigh him down. You don't understand, said David. I don't wear any of this when I'm out in my father's field, but, but it's there that I've attacked and killed lions and bears when they've come and threatened my father's sheep. And the same God who gave me victory in those fields will give me victory in this valley. Shedding Saul's armor, David puts five stones into his shepherd bag, takes a slingshot and a stick, and walks down into the valley. He doesn't look like a warrior. People see things one way. God sees things another. What do you see? You see a mismatch? Everyone else did. That's what kept them frozen in fear on the hill. You ever been there before? Frozen? Paralyzed? To do what you know needs to be done. Hiding? From a challenge? Happens to all of us. Perhaps that, that's why we're drawn to this story so much. I'd be willing to bet that most of us feel like underdogs, if not just feeling like we're already defeated. Well, maybe not all the time. Maybe we can act courageous on the outside and make others believe we're bold most of the time, like Saul's army, until something comes along that's bigger than anything we've ever seen before. Whether it's criticism, or it's an illness, some glaring need, a horrifying evil, an addiction, anything, any circumstance that's so overwhelming it's threatening to take the life out of you. Any one, any thing that sets itself up to defy you or to defy God, to just wreak havoc, to do injustice and destroy the good that God desires for us. In a world that's overrun with bullies and bad guys and obstacles of all different kinds, I suspect most of us, if we're honest, can feel like we're in over our heads, like we're not going to make it, like the world's full of lions and we're a piece of meat. I think that's why we're drawn to this story. That's why we're drawn to people like Nelson Mandela, who died last week. We need someone like that. 
We need a story like that to inspire us. We need it just as much as Saul's men standing on the hill needed to see someone step down into the valley and take on the giant. We need a hero. That's why there's someone I want you to meet. Several someones, actually. Uh, five years ago, van loads of our students traveled down to Tennessee for a Christ and Youth Conference. Students go to that uh, e- each year. It's a high-impact week of uh, inspiration and teaching and worship and fun. and uh, it's, a, it's a great week. And I suppose it's true that in some ways they never quite know what they're going to encounter on that trip. So it was perhaps a surprise to them when during one of their sessions a God-defying voice rang out over the gathering. The presentation was made on the reality of human trafficking in Cambodia. The sexual exploitation of young girls was mocking the dignity of people that God created. It was a behemoth of a problem. A horrifying evil. Sarah, Mackenzie, Hannah, Becky, Nathan, Bobby, among others were there listening to this. Like David, they were young. Like David, they didn't anticipate that they would encounter a giant when they showed up. And, like David, they decided to step down into the valley. Something had stirred in them. This wasn't right. This shouldn't happen. God is not okay with this. Those were the thoughts swirling around among this group of students, and it, it forced them to confront something that was more imposing than they'd ever seen before. They could hardly believe how awful it was, but they couldn't just go home from Tennessee and not do something about it. But yet they'd never done anything like that before. And they were young. They didn't have any experience. But they moved ahead. They had some conversation, and and they began to create some awareness back home. And eventually they they made a plan. They're going to start selling some bracelets that had been made by women who were rescued from the sex trade. So they could raise some money so that it could be reinvested to help more and more women escape from those evils and begin to heal. Rafa House was the organization that would uh, facilitate this process. Now, students, you might just expect a weekend whim or a, a spiritual high that lacks the ongoing energy to carry it through. But the students were serious, and they stayed engaged in the battle. As their faithfulness continued, their opportunities grew, which is often the way it works by the way, like if you graphed it out and faithfulness and opportunity were on a graph, as faithfulness endures, opportunity continues to grow. That's exactly what happened for them. They they began to speak and to tell the Rafa House story in more and more venues, engendering more and more support, raising more and more money, rescuing more and more women. Now there's a a fashion show fundraiser every spring, student-led events. Just a couple weeks ago, they hosted an experience at our Glocal Impact Celebration to open more eyes. All the time, they are getting calls and opportunities to come and speak, set up a display, tell the story of what can happen when people are willing to take on a giant. And just like for David, just how multiple victories over lions and bears out in a sheep field gave him confidence to step on to the battlefield, so too these experiences are now leading these students to take aim at giants of multiple kinds. Mackenzie is in college now, working in women's advocacy and counseling. Sarah is planning to go work with the Rafa House organization in Joplin, Missouri. Tori spent nine weeks this summer in Chicago, discipling young girls, and intends to commit herself to ministry in urban environments. Rachel's at UMBC, creating awareness there and starting their own branch of Rafa House's ministry. 
Bella and Coco have each written papers for their college about the evils of sex trafficking and what can be done about it. Emily has been an ambassador for Rafa House all over the Baltimore region. If you've been around Mountain, you've maybe heard of Rafa House before, and you've heard about it because these young Davidas and Davids have stood up to a God-defying giant. These are our, you, you could say, future leaders, but let's just say these are leaders of God's people. Young, yes. Inexperienced, sure. But when God looks for someone to lead his people, he looks at the heart. He needs someone, they can be young, but he needs someone who's in sync with him. Someone who wants what he wants. He needs someone to lead the way he would lead. That's why he anointed David and gave him his spirit. That's why he's given his spirit to these girls and to any one of us, if we're willing. Because the world is full of valleys filled with mocking voices and life-threatening challenges and immovable obstacles. And what we need is someone willing to trust. Someone willing to put themselves in the hand of a God who's taking care of problems way bigger than nine-foot giants. We need a hero. We need heroes raising our kids. And we need heroes inspiring us adults. And so, the Bible shows us David descending into the valley to face Goliath. (laughs) Goliath can't believe what he sees. Was this a joke? You kidding me? After 40 days, he's probably thinking, am I going delirious here, watching this little boy come toward him? Does he even have hair in his armpits? Verse 43, Goliath said to David, am I a dog? You're going to chase me away with your stick? And he cursed him by his gods. Come here, little boy, I'll feed you to the birds. The wild animals are going to pick the flesh from your bones. And in response to that, David said to the Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone who's gathered here is going to know it's not by sword, it's not by spear that the Lord saves, but the battle belongs to the Lord and he will give you into my hands. Do you see a mismatch? This is one of those moments where where the upper story and the lower story seem to tell two different tales. From down below, no one would give the shepherd boy a chance. But from a higher perspective, you can see this giant's up against way more than he can handle. David tries to warn him, sword and spear and javelin don't stack up very well against the Lord Almighty. David reaches into his shepherd's pouch and pulls out one of the stones and loads it into his sling and begins to swing it around his head. Something he probably practiced a million times out in the pasture. But this time he's got a big target. He takes aim at Goliath's head, which who knows, probably the size of a watermelon, right? He spun the sling around his head faster and faster, and then he let it go. The stone flew through the air and hit Goliath right in the middle of his forehead, and he crashed to the ground like a fallen tree. David ran up to him and took the sword from Goliath's side. With one blow, he cut off Goliath's head. 
Yeah! The Israelite army shouts, No! The Philistines cry as they turn and run. And the rout was on. Every man on the Philistine hill charged down into the valley, chased down the Philistines and defeated them, and then came back and plundered their camp. All because one little boy trusted a big God. Now that's a real David and Goliath story. So what does it mean for us? Uh, probably lots. Uh, uh, I don't know, I feel real small to preach this thing. It's such a compelling uh, display of God's power and His faithfulness. Uh, I, I don't know, I, I pray the Lord is speaking to you, uh, that He is emboldening our church through His Word today. Uh, there, there's a lot here. But I think there are some things that the Spirit may be saying to us uh, that, that we haven't made explicit already. Um, but I think it, it might be this, that number one, if you're going to pursue God's heart, it will lead you into the valley to face giants. If you don't want to pursue God, you can wait on the hill. The giant will still be there, but you can wait on the hill. But if you're going to entrust yourself to the Lord, then you're going to come face to face with things that, at least according to the lower story, are big and fierce and want to destroy you. But secondly, good news. If you make that one commitment to be a person after God's own heart, then the decision to step down into the valley gets easier. In fact, if you just make the first decision, then you really don't even have to make anymore. David's courage to go and face Goliath, that was a big deal, right? But, but it never seemed that way to him, never seemed even like a decision. He never wavered. He, he just knew God is not okay with this and something's going to be done. Because long before, when nobody was watching, he decided he was going to pursue God above everything else. And when that pursuit leads us to a place where we're in over our head, we can keep going because, number three, the best news of all, the battle belongs to the Lord. It always has. He knows we need a hero. That's why the Bible shows us David. That's why, the, that's why God uses David to point us to Jesus. You know, standing on the hill and watching a young boy descend down into the valley to do something that no one else could do, to win a victory that no one else could win. It's not unlike the Christmas story. Watching a young baby boy descend into this world, outmatched against bullies and bad guys and evils of every kind, looming under the shadow of death, which to that point had never lost a battle in all of history. But that battle, just like every other battle, belonged to the Lord Jesus, as unlikely a hero as he might have been. He came humbly as a baby. He left victorious, conquering death so that we might not have to be afraid in the face of it. Christmas comes because God says, there's someone I want you to meet. His name is Jesus. He, he's someone you can trust in the battles that you face. The battle belongs to Him. So give Him your heart and go with Him into the valley. What's in the valley mocking you right now? 
What's got your stomach tied up in knots, sending chills down your spine, keeping you up at night? What's mocking God? What, what do you see around you that you know is not what God had in mind? God is not okay with it. You know it's not something that He wants. Whether it's something in your own life that is standing up as a giant against what God wants for you. Or it's a challenge in the broader world that you might be uniquely uh, positioned to address. Like taking on poverty through sponsoring a child. Whatever it is, I'm sure it's big. And you might be small. You might be young. And you might have never conquered anything like this before. But the battle belongs to the Lord Jesus. He's not worried about the giant. He's just looking for someone with a heart that matches his. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your story, which has been retold over and over down through the generations. Thank you for the story of David and Goliath and the encouragement that it brings to us for how it puts your faithfulness on display. Thank you that you are a God who conquers giants we ask that you uh, be with us in these moments and embolden us no doubt we are all facing giants of different kinds or we will we will be one day so prepare us let us make that first decision of faithfulness call us to you and help us to trust you right now give us the faith that it takes to take on the giant in jesus name amen